Two reporters were assigned to cover what seemed a routine burglary in the opulent Watergate building in downtown Washington. It was the first step in what must be the most devastating political detective story of the century. Here is their amazing story, from the first suspicions through the torturous trail of false leads, lies, secrecy, and high-level pressure, to the final moments when they were able to put the pieces of the puzzle together and write the expose that won them a Pulitzer Prize. This is the definitive history, written by the two determined journalists responsible of how a scandal was uncovered, which still reverberates throughout the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to all the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. I'm going to read from my next guest's article about The Insider, which reads, Journalism enjoyed a period of popularity in the wake of Watergate, says Lowell Bergman, who recently taught journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. When there was a lot of public education about the value of good information, that's when investigative reporting, if you will, was fashionable. Today, it's hard to imagine that kind of change happening as a result of a news report. He's talking about the discovery of 60 Minutes and uh, the complicity of the entire tobacco industry in addicting people into a product that they knowingly is going to kill them. Bergman says that there's more great investigative journalism and reporting being done right now than any other time in my career. My next guest also writes, that's perhaps the final tragic shift that the insider captures, the point at which power, prestige, and profit became more important than the truth, even to many of those who had ostensibly dedicated their lives to the truth. You've got a disregard for truth regardless of how high the standard, says Mann. That's Michael Mann. Citing the efforts of Fox News and Roger Ailes and others to corrupt information as a way of harvesting resentment in the population. Today, there's no revelation one could imagine, he says, that would have the power to change outcomes or at least for more than about two weeks. This is not an insider podcast. This is a minute-by-minute examination of the greatest journalism movie ever made, a movie that producer Robert Redford crafted pre the inception of the best-selling novel of the same name, All the President's Men, with the two most dynamic journalist-turned-authors in the history of American journalism, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. The film, directed by Alan J. Pakula, a master of paranoia thrillers, is all the president's men. As this is a one-heat-minute production, there are a lot of people asking, what do you want to do next? What do you want to get next? And even as early as six months before the end of the project, I was talking to my next guest, and he said, what are you going to do next? Another Michael Mann movie? Because we are, if anything, complete Michael Mann obsessives. And I said, you know what? There's this movie called All the President's Men, which, apart from being cinematic perfection, end-to-end, insanely powerful, one of the great morality tales ever told in cinema, it kind of has the power, minute by minute, that Heat had, and I had a desire to do this podcast. And the reason that my first guest, who apart from being one of the most talented film critics the world has ever seen, an editor at New York Magazine and online at Vulture, a Michael Mann aficionado of the highest order, when I told him that this was the next movie that I was going to do, he said, you know, that's so funny you said that. Because just the other day I was watching it and I thought the same thing. (laughs) This is a movie that can stand up to minute by minute scrutiny. Ladies and gentlemen, my dear friend, the man responsible for Michael Mann being on One Heat Minute, 
Bill Gatbiri, welcome to my new mad adventure, All the President's Minutes. I am so happy to be here at the beginning um, so that, uh, you know, if, if, if it collapses in <laughs> a flaming wreck, I can at least take partial responsibility. <laughs> it will not collapse. We will not let it fall to pieces. Uh, but, you know, this is a perfect movie. And in a completely different way and in a completely different set of philosophical circumstances and in a completely different aesthetic mode. And also like one of the strangest kind of mashes of history. Um, it is the journalism superhero movie. <laughs> like it's the Don yeah. of Superman, the movie for journalists. Um, and I just want to, I want to get underneath what, what you saw in it and why you rewatch it because while you do watch Michael Mann movies probably more than any other filmmakers' movies on rewatch, what was it about all the president's men that made you not think that I was a complete lunatic wanting to go down this path? You know, it's funny. I don't remember what it was specifically. Um, but I will say the thing about this movie is, and I think people, I mean, obviously when you, when you see it, you see it, but like it has a reputation because of, you know, because of the book, All the President's Men, and obviously because of all the work that uh, Woodward and Bernstein did, um, it has a reputation as being kind of a fairly straightforward, you know, journalism, procedural, political drama, whatever, kind of good for you, history on, on screen, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then when you watch it, it's actually like almost fucking avant-garde. I mean, it is actually a, <laughs> incredibly well-made film and a very stylized film. Um, and it's, you know, and it's also, I think one of the reasons why it, it bears kind of close analysis is because the film has these fascinating ellipses. Like it doesn't, it doesn't spell everything out for you. Um, and I think, you know, this, this was, I'm sure it was partly a stylistic decision because you know, it comes a couple of years after the parallax view, which is like incredibly elliptical and just like, I mean, it, you know, totally paranoid, incredibly tense, but also, you know, when you watch it, it's, it's shot in such a way and edited in such a way that is, I mean, it's almost like a, this like kind of weird nightmare that you're constantly waking in and out of. Um, and so, so, so like, you know, Prakula was, I think, a film like a much more experimental filmmaker than I think he gets credit for being even some of the later movies are like that. Um, so part of it was that, but part of it was also, I think like, you know, and you didn't have to spell things out in 1976. <laughs> you yeah. know, like people knew what happened. This was the biggest thing that had happened. Um, and a, a film that sort of went step by step through what Woodward and Bernstein did and, you know, the crimes that Nixon committed and blah, blah, blah would have been like ridiculous to people, I think in 1976. So as a result, the film kind of jumps forward and, you know, certain things that it like focuses on that would have been very important for its audience, but don't necessarily today resonate the way they might have back then. So like it started off, like maybe there was a practical reason why the film is kind of weirdly fragmented and stylized and, and for lack of a better word, arty in its, in its kind of narrative, you know, inclination. Um, but now, years later, even for those of us who, who kind of know the, the events of Watergate, 
now it feels, you know, even more stylized and even stranger. Um, and, and I, I just, I, I love watching it because, you know, I have to remind myself of all these things. There are all these things that the film doesn't show you, but just kind of hints at, and you're like, Oh, right. That was actually a, like a really important thing that happened. And, and I don't know, it's, it, there's, there's something fascinating about it. And it's, it's like, it's designed to provoke conversation. Every minute of it is designed to provoke conversation in that sense. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, Pakula is an endlessly fascinating director. I mean, he's one of those directors actually who, who, you know, obviously he has a few films that, that people that are held up. This is one of them, but you know, like he actually had a fascinating career and he made a lot of films, even some kind of throwaway ones that didn't get much respect. You watch him again today and you're like, you know, the person who made this like knew what they were up to. Like oh. they did, this was a real oh, yeah. filmmaker yeah. and a real big screen filmmaker too. Like I was watching, what was it? Um, I was watching the Parallax View. No, this is not, not the Parallax View. I did watch the Parallax View recently, but I was watching the Pelican Brief. Yes. Right? He made the Pelican Brief. And Pelican Brief, I have never seen the Pelican Brief on a big screen. Years ago, when it first came out, I, I watched it on Laserdisc when it came out on Laserdisc, you know, on like a 20-inch TV. And, you know, it was pretty dumb, whatever. Um, <laughs> I didn't think much of it. And then I watched it again a few years ago. A couple of years ago, I was doing a thing on for Denzel Washington. And so I watched Pelican Brief again. And, um, and now, you know, our TVs are a little bigger now. So, so I was able to better appreciate kind of the, the composition. But at, when I saw it, I was like, this is such a big screen. This film is so clearly designed for the big screen with these kind of wide shots where, you know, the figures are tiny and things like that. And, um, and I really regretted not having ever seen it on a big screen. And I also thought to myself, somebody needs to do a retrospective of, uh, Pakula's work because I think you know like these are films really that, that deserves to be rediscovered or rediscovered on a big screen I think that you're right because if you just he's got 16 directorial credits between 69 and 1997 and his second last movie is the Pelican Brief um, which you know was kind of a much more sort of popcorn it was like a popcorn president's man you know but like a pulpy yeah. popcorn airport you know uh, inspired by Grisham or one of those and, but just looking back, it's like presumed innocent, orphans, Sophie's choice, parallax view, clute, all the president's men, consenting adults. It's like some serious, some seriously like powerhouse movies in this resume. And it's just, it's, it's all the way up to 90. Like it, it, it's one of those things where the, as the industry is changing and he's being redefined or, or, or or, or re-pigeonholed as his, his career is going on. But like, no matter what genre he's operating in, it's interesting. He's, he's making interesting, big cinematic choices across that whole gamut of different things. But like when you put him in something that's tense, where duplicity is writ large, where people's morality is being constantly questioned, like even something like Presumed Innocent, which may be Harrison Ford's best performance ever. It's like, it's those movies that you're like, okay, this guy, he's got a very good sense of toying with the ex your expectation versus reality of the characters that he's examining. And so you can totally see why the guy who made Clute in the Parallax View is is Redford's absolute number one first choice. You will do this because I need I need the guy who can no matter what edge we put on this tail, no matter how um, the incredible Bill Goldman 
William Goldman, who wrote the script and was Oscar awarded an Oscar for his efforts, um, wrangled the screenplay. However, that's going to happen. We're going to make it feel tense and make people feel feel paranoid about the existence of uh, uh, you know. This is the like you know if if JFK was already triggering and sort of brought at that time conspiracy into the mainstream of the United States consciousness, like president's men was like the exclamation point after that, that was like, Nope, this is it. This is it guys. This is exactly what this whole world is. There are no, there are, well, no, I mean, there are no noble politicians here. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because all the president's men, because, you know, it comes right after the parallax view, which is, um, you know, which is, you know, the most paranoid movie ever made, frankly. And, <laughs> um, and it's, but, but that's, I mean, I mean, Parallax View has kind of this residue of the 60s. I'm, I'm always surprised to discover that it's only made in 1974. Like, I always think of it as like a 1970 movie, but no, it's 74. Like, because it's, you know, it's, because it begins and ends with like the, and, you know, assassination inquiry, kind of almost like the, the Warren Commission. And um, so it, it really kind of starts with, you know, trust no one. And, and you, you, you know, you, you follow the film, which is also about a journalist, you know, interestingly. Um, and, you, and you follow this character into this world where everything is like, or nothing is as it seems. And it's so nefarious and, and, and so sinister. And yet you can't really get your hands on it. Like, you, you don't quite know exactly what he's uncovering. And... You know, like I said, it's all shot and edited in such a way that, like, you know, there are all these like little moments that you're like, wait, 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 did, did that guy just do this? And you know, it's like <laughs> things are like things are cut in such a so, so tightly and in, in such little fragments that you'll see something happen on screen, and it's hard to believe that it happened because he doesn't keep it on screen long enough to really fully register. Um, and it's uh, you know, it, so that like you're not just like you watch the movie and you're paranoid, but then the movie is shot in such a way where you start to doubt yourself, which like puts you in this like extra, like this next level of paranoia. Um, and on the heels of that, all, all the president's men is, you know, there's something very earnest about it in that sense. I mean, even though the whole thing is incredibly sinister and these guys are uncovering it, you know, you realize that there are good people out there. Yes. Because in because in Parallax View there are not in Parallax View. I mean, he's got like his editor who's who's killed and whatnot. But you know, like in Parallax View, everybody like turns on him. Every, like nobody can be trusted. Whereas President's Men, it's it's weird. Like they're they're going into these, and some of it's obviously because it's based on you know true stories. But um, you know, there are moments where people come forth and say, you know, it's like you know something horrible happened here, and and you know we have to. You know, like, I'm glad you're doing something about it. And it's always, it's interesting how, how the thing works. And um, so that there's like a, a little bit of light comes in when you're watching all the president's men after, you know, after some, after something like the parallax view, all the president's men shows you that maybe there is some hope and yes. maybe kind of the, the paranoia can be kind of turned around because you realize while this is happening, the other side is going paranoid, right? Like the, the, yes. the Nixon people paranoid and you start to see like people their are parents people are shredding papers and burning them <laughs> like on the Shred other side 
they're shredding papers and you kind of feel the, the you, you can see the, the, the paranoia seeping out, even though you don't see these people as much, but like the, you can sense, you can sense it. And I love how the film kind of evokes the sense of there's this alternate world, not the alternate world, but this, this, you know, this alternate narrative where like the people at the, you know, on the Nixon side are just like completely losing their shit. And they're just like in <laughs> utter disarray and they're just like threatening people left and right. And it's just like complete chaos. We don't see that. We just sense it from just like all the things that these, you know, our journalist heroes are methodically doing. So I love how like all the president's men kind of turns the paranoia back and suddenly you can sense the bad guys are paranoid now too. Well, in that perfect segue, we're going to watch the very first minute of all the president's men together. And speaking of avant-garde choices and, and, and speaking of kind of like kicking off with the feeling of movie, the power of the blank page is the power of the first minute of a minute by minute podcast. So Bilger and I are going to watch the very first minute of all the president's men together. We're going to come back and unpack it for you and, uh, and then talk about everything. Because this won't be the last time I'm going to ask him to be on the show. I'm giving him the first minute, which is a tough one. It's just paper. It's some paper. It's a news feed. So he's got to come back for a really juicy scene. But let's do this one together. side of the east front of the capital. The helicopter hovering gently just off the ground. Amazing timing. The president flying all the way across. All right, there it is. There it is. Blank paper. That classic Warner Brothers thing and then blank paper. And it feels like an impossible time before anything happens to that white paper. And this is something that I've forgotten a million times and then remembered a million times as I rewatched this movie is that it just kicks off with just a, con- a contextual, you know, context-setting date on yeah. a, written on a typewriter and then the news footage of Nixon addressing the nation for his first term. Well, also, the, the, the shot of the helicopter, I think, is interesting because um, as I think I, I believe, you know, I mean, Nixon leaving on a helicopter after he resigned is also, if I remember correctly, an iconic image. Yes. Um, I wasn't around for it, but, 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 you know, so I think that, you know, there is a certain guy, but I don't think we don't see the, we don't see Nixon leave at the end of this one. I don't think, but, um, no. but there is something, there is kind of a little perverse because remember it's 76, like it's all this shit happened like two years ago, you know? <laughs> yes. So like, you know, so like, this is like, you know, he's like, all right, here we go. Here's Nixon arriving on a helicopter. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting way to start it. Um, especially since like the Nixon, you know, the, the speech he's giving has nothing to do with 
you know, Watergate. Um, Nothing to do at all. It's so, it's actually a puff. It's a really beautiful kind of throwback political puff piece of like, look at the incredibly precise timings of the helicopter and it flies from this other the other side of the world where president nixon has been you know doing good for the american people upholding our values and he descends out out literally and figuratively out of the clouds to come down to us and so it's got so much of that in this moment i love that that poetic justice angle but i also love that it's like here he comes down from on high where he thinks he's untouchable and he now steps well, into Congress, and here he is. Well, he, he not not just he thinks he's untouchable, but we we sense that he's untouchable, right? I mean, yes. the machinery of the state is functioning perfectly, mm. and you know, I mean, uh, the I mean, you know, like uh, I always feel funny talking to people about like American politics and and how it works in American media because unfortunately, the whole world is in American media and politics. So I feel like a, I feel like a bit of a mansplainer when I talk about that. But but it is interesting to me how you know like Americans you know we're so we they we, we we're so kind of proud of the fact that we don't have a king or a queen or whatever. But like we're so like at least until recently, the last few years <laughs> have kind of changed all that. But but like there is this kind of like weird fetishization. And it is, you know, it is touching of like the rituals and the kind of the machinery of the state and how well everything functions. Like if you ever watch a presidential inauguration, it's just people gushing about how well everything is. This is the guy and at this time he's going to give this speech and this guy's going to go there. And the two are going to ride in the limousine together. And then there's a this and, this, you know, state funerals and, uh, and, and, you know, um, inaugurations and things like that, you know, people, you know, gush about like, you know, there is pomp and circumstance. Like they pretend like there isn't, but there totally is. And some of it and is just in the dry functioning of the state. We're like so in awe of it. Um, get two televisions or two laptops and press play on YouTube on the last presidential inauguration. And then the Royal, yeah. one of the Royal weddings. And you tell yeah. me which one has more pomp and circumstance. <laughs> they have <laughs> equal. It is, it is, equally adorned and equally proud and it's this big show of nationalistic pride like it's a big prideful exercise and i think yeah. that what's so wonderful about not only the i love what you just said there Bilga, the per the perfection and the precision of the machinery typified in just a helicopter in this moment for its poetic justice at the end of his career but this entire sequence in this clip on, on reflection is that and and just literally seconds after we watch this, there's such a chorus of unified support that I just yeah. don't think really has ever, maybe since this moment, since Watergate, since the time of these re- revelations, since the since the time of the Nixon administration, since the time of the Vietnam War, I can't remember other speeches and things where there was not a at least a a slightly more divisive edge as in a president is coming to make an inaugural speech about something the year ahead, et cetera. But like in this moment, like 
it's emphatic. Like everyone's clapping. Everyone's on their feet. Everyone is supportive of the direction. You know, they've done their political tussles in the, in the media and in the public and for the election. And now that Nixon's there, he's the president, he's the leader. We've got to listen to him. And there is just this absolute like, we're going to listen to this guy. He is the man. He's the man of the moment. And so, yeah, I, I, I love that contrast. I love that contrast. And it's really funny. I watched a an absolutely brilliant 2019 documentary called Apollo 11. Have you seen it this year? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's absolutely wonderful. But I, what, what's so fun- I feel like I haven't properly seen it because I still haven't seen it on a big screen. Agreed. And Agreed. Everyone says it's like incredible on a big screen. I, I have not either. Um, I saw it on home entertainment because I missed it this year. But the one thing that I thought in that moment is there's a moment when Nixon is like addressing Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Collins in in space. Uh, once they're back in their mo- like once they're back in their little module on the moon, and and is actually having a conversation with them about how the, the proud the, the pride of America and you know human ingenuity and purpose and hope, and knowing the ins and outs of this story and being prepared for the the ins and outs of discussing this film and discussing the book that inspired it, and then the following books, the final days, and this being a nexus of really. Pol- politics, history, journalism, filmmaking, and all of those things that are currently echoing in today's political climate because they're inescapable to talk about. I just thought for like a brief moment after being in the headspace of Nixon's a dirtbag, I was like, God, I know he's a dirtbag. I know he's going to get fired in a couple of years after this happens, but man, he was really articulate. And he said something that (laughs) sounded like selfless and wasn't purely nationalistic and it was about humanity. And I was like, this is so, even Nixon looks good in Apollo 11 is what I thought to myself. Well, I mean, look, Nixon had great speechwriters. I mean, that's not like <laughs> there's, you know, speechwriters were kind of like, they later kind of became famous in their own right. But um, I mean, look, there, there is, you know, I, I know today it's, it's unfashionable to talk about this sort of thing, but, but, you know, like they're like uh, Americans are not terrible at kind of building consensus, or used to not be terrible about kind of building consensus after an election and and allowing the the president to govern. Um, that's changed in you know some time, and it's it's unfortunate, I think, in many ways. But in other ways, you know, it's 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 perfectly understandable. Um, and Nixon was, you know, Nixon was a popular president. I mean, it's, it's awful. I think he was a monster, but. Um, <laughs> You know, like that's the thing. That that election in 1972, he he. I mean, he wins by some insane amount. I mean, he destroys Goldwater. Um, so you know, it, the, the 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 outcome of that election was was rarely in doubt. Um, and you know, I mean, but but it is interesting that the film. I mean, I like the fact that the film begins, and I love the way you know that it starts with the the words being typed on the paper um, because it's, you know, there's so much power in that. Like, you know, like, I mean, I don't know that this is how it would have been interpreted back then, but today in a, in an era where there's so little kind of printed media now, like the idea, like the, the, the the power of words printed on a page um, has so much more power than like words on a screen. Like that you just like you can't I mean just aesthetically, like, you know, obviously, you know, words on a screen have carry plenty of meaning. I, I write words on a screen, but <laughs> uh, but uh but like aesthetically, 
you're never going to have words on a screen. I mean, even Black Hat tried it and it failed. <laughs> like, you're never going to make words on a screen as powerful as like, you know, a a, a giant, you know, a, a a piece of metal hitting a piece of paper and making a letter. Um, there's just something so aesthetically powerful and pleasing about that, and I love the way the film starts off in that way. Yeah, it's just it's, and also just like. And it's just, a, it's not a phrase. It's not a quote. It's just a date. Like right yeah. now, right in this time, black ink on this, on, on this like threaded, like it's it, like, it looks, you can see the fibers. It's these very delicate fibers when it does that actual zoom in and smashing down with this precise ink and just a date. Like right now at this moment, there was nothing more important than the facts are on this paper. Like, and there's something that's like in irrefutable about the facts that like on that paper, right? Like, it's just like, bang, bang, bang. This is it. This is 1972. This is when it's all, this is when a whole bunch of shit is about to go down. And I think one thing yeah. you said, which I wanted to go back to is this is one of the itches that hopefully this podcast will scratch for you um, uh, around is... Nixon defeats Goldwater in the election in 72 and it's emphatic. It's like, it's a, it's a demolition. What's so weird is it, it to me is the way in which the, the power, like the power was so all consuming that he had to, there was so many machinations, black ops sort of like, uh, political interference and, and attempted espionage, internal espionage to maintain power that was so emphatically his already. Yeah. That is what um hopefully at some points in the podcast and some of our wonderful guests that are coming up are gonna are gonna try and unpack and scratch with us and scratch for you guys listening because that's one of the things that I think about all the time. And it it also is like we are now in twenty nineteen. And so I love watching this I love watching this movie on a pure kind of gobsmacking, te you know, texture like level of like I I can there's something so tactile about everything like, I, like there's messy ink and scribbly things there is nothing there's never been a cooler move almost in any movie than Jason Robards putting his feet up on a chair and pulling out a red pen it's just like oh, oh yeah. that is the biggest flex there's like big Robards energy you know it's just so yeah. fantastic and so this right at the beginning of the movie this paper you know this ink hitting paper this thing and then the you know the i guess for me bilger is the comfort of the fact base like there's something irrefutable about just a helicopter landing and then an american president walking in to deliver a speech it's irrefutable a, le a helicopter lands they go they do it um and so much of this movie and its procedure and its unfolding and everything has a comfort in the delivery and the execution and the i guess the like the way that they lift up facts and just talking really clearly about what they can verify and what they can prove. And, and that's the, and, and people wanting to go on the record as part of this whole thing. But I love that this starts out with something irrefutable. Well, uh, I was going to say, I mean, there is, the, you know, you mentioned Robards and, you know, with, with all of that stuff, it's interesting, you know, that you could compare this film a little bit to, I mean, obviously for obvious reasons, you could compare it to the post. Yes. Right, which is which is a great movie. I love the post, 
Um, and you know, it, it takes place a few years before this stuff. Um, and what is the post is, and it's uh, part of it is the, the, the eras in which they were made, but also the directors who made them. But like the post, what I love about the post is it, it dramatizes everything. Like every single little thing that happens in the post is like, is shot like it's the climax to Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> Somebody is like photocopying and like the camera, like, you know, like tracked into the photocopier. Cause it's like, it's the Lost Ark of the Covenant, you know, like, like everything in the post is so hyper dramatized, and that's what I love about it. And all the president's men, and I think this is something that you know, Pakula was very good at. He actually under dramatizes things. Like things happen so casually. You know, it's like Jason Robards. He's off on his way to a party or something. He's in his tux. I mean, or let me take, let me take a look at that. You know, it's like there's, it's like, it's like everything is kind of moving along, and it's all very casual. And Dustin Hoffman is kind of mumbling his lines and. Robert Redford is just kind of very charming and soft-spoken. And, in, and that, in that great scene, you've got the wonderful Jack Warden just eating the scene oh. um, as Harry yeah. Rosenfeld just yeah, there just going. He's the only one who's just like, what? what, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, that's that's what you call a damn fine piece of American journalism, man. <laughs> it's just like he's eating it. And then and then Robot's just like, what? I'll just sit here, put my feet up. This is, yeah, this exactly. Is yeah, but, like, but like, even just the smooth functioning of like the newspaper itself it's like you know you, you type your thing you, you give it to the copy desk and then they take it and it's like and then you know um and then you know it's, it's, I, I can't remember who which one to say like redford is taking the hoffman's thing or hoffman is taking redford's thing i can't Hoff, remember hoffman takes redford's thing bernstein takes woodlitz yeah. and goes i brought yeah, it to the it's, it's, yeah um but like it's but like all that stuff is, it's all so casually done. Like there's this, this like kind of very mundane quality to everything. It's still fascinating to watch. It's not boring or anything, but you're still mesmerized by it. But you're mesmerized because it's so casual and because it, it just feels so lived in and real and tactile. And, and you know, like it, it takes a while for these guys to even realize what they've got. Right. Yes. It's just kind of like everything is just kind of, casually smoothly functioning in its way and they're doing their things and it's just like and then there's a you know there are certain points in the film where you're like oh wait like this is what's going on and like holy shit and it's like and i love like deep throat in that sense is actually the um he's kind of like he brings the noir element right like yes like the casual things and then suddenly it's like you know guy in like a you know underground parking lot you know in the shadows and suddenly it goes fully noir and i love the fact that later on we found out this guy was like the vice director of the fbi <laughs> or something because yes. they're they're the guys who are going to completely like overdo everything clearly you know like it makes perfect sense yeah and of course and and doesn't every fbi guy like want to be sam spade like isn't that the isn't that the whole yeah. the whole thing yeah um, yeah, no, exactly. And, and so, so I love how kind of casual and like the film just kind of lulls you into its rhythms and you're sort of pulled along, even though it's, like I said, it's, it's a very fragmented narrative, but you're kind of really just sort of pulled along very casually. Um, and then it's only kind of gradually, even though you know what's coming, even though you know the story, but like, you know, you're only kind of gradually made aware of how kind of 
really kind of dramatic and earth-shaking all this stuff is. I think it's a massive credit to William Goldman, Bill Goldman, the amazing screenwriter, arguably one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, and and, and a, a movie industry and culture writer, um, writer of the big picture and what lies did I tell. And throughout this podcast, you're probably going to hear some excerpts of those wonderful <laughs> books um, read out because there's some really colourful stuff written about this film in, uh, in, in, in a couple of those. But I think one thing that I love about Bill Goldman and exactly what you were talking about is it's not it, – his work hasn't necessarily been typified with, like, self-awareness, as in, like, outward, you know, showy self-awareness. But the movie has an awareness of its own pace, like, mm. in, in such a way that there's wonderful scenes and some of them are the most powerful scenes of the movie where you get Robards – as Ben Bradley going, where's the goddamn story? Like it's the movie yeah. asking itself, where the hell is this going? And yeah. such is the power of the movie that you get lost in what's happening that the monumental, you know, cultural shifting events that are the result of the end of their incredible journalistic work it kind of gets lost in the procedure of the day to day. And then Robards is there going, where's the goddamn story? Like what the hell is this thing doing? And so it has those little awareness moments. And I think we're going to dive into that as like, we'll talk the machinations of the script, but I, I think that that's, you know, and it all, it, it all starts with like, what is the exact tone this movie is going to set from the beginning? And then having to having the, the stones and the audacity and you know, that like, I, I love what you said about, um, Pakula having maybe a little bit more avant-garde like energy of like, we're just going to take this, this in a car park, this needs to be full parallax view. Like this has to be full, like parallax view noir moments. And, and then we can sort of get back to these rhythms. But in these moments, we're going to get inside the head of Woodward, this, you know, Midwestern guy, big, you know, beautiful Robert Redford. And we're going to get creeped out by Washington's underbelly. And it's just, it's just wonderful. It's just so wonderful. There's so much, there's going to be so much to talk about. So, so much crazy stuff. It's a, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, uh, it's one of those movies that um, is sort of weirdly comforting to watch um, in part because it's, like I said, it's so kind of casual in that way, but, but like you can kind of lose yourself in just the, the procedure of all this stuff. Um, you know, there, there, there's some movies that are like alternately like incredibly disturbing and also incredibly comforting, right? Yes. Like I would not class, like I would not classify Parallax View as comforting in that way. Parallax View is actually like a very agonizing movie to watch. Like yes. it's, it makes you feel just like really fucked up inside. Um, but um, but there is something about you know the the charm of those two actors here. Yes, where they're so. Um, you know, they, they, they play off so well against each other. Also, they're, you know, they're like nothing like Woodward and Bernstein, as no. far as I can tell. No. I, I've only really seen Woodward and Bernstein in their later, you know, iterations as I'm grand gonna, old men. I'm just going to hold Bill Graff a picture. So Hoffman <laughs> very much more looks like Bernstein, dark, sure. you know, and, and but absolutely much better looking. Under the fop of hair, it can kind of sort of semi-fool you. But Woodward yeah. would be very thrilled that Robert Redford yeah. is portraying him because different color, you know, different colored hair. I think the, I think the posture is, I think what 
Redford really nails with Woodward. It's that kind of, you know, my family for three generations have done nothing but farm work, you know, not intele- non-intellectual pursuits, physical. And and then he comes yeah. on and he's got this great, you know, he, he cuts he cuts a fine, you know, he's the movie he's the movie version that everyone would want of themselves. Let's be fair. Like so oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean it's it, it, I, I, I mean I think this is almost like where it started too. Like <laughs> yes. the, the idea that like you could be just like a complete schlub and a guy like Robert Redford might play you in a movie. <laughs> like so like that this is where I think that joke maybe began. I don't know. Um but uh but yeah, I mean I think also by I'm the way still, you, I'm, you mentioned- I'm still I'm still wondering who's is when when the Bill Gabiri biopic comes out, is it Oscar Isaac that's gonna be playing you? Is yeah. that what's happening? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, that would be, that would be very flattering. Do you hear the cat? I do. She, she, has, she has, she has made her appearance. Um, it would but, not be a show did, without you that your cat didn't appear in. No, of course not. Um, did, uh, by the way, you mentioned the final days. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see the movie, the final days. No, um, I haven't yet, but I it's will. really good. It's really good. Um, it is actually uh, one of the best Nixons you'll ever see. Um, and um, it's, it's actually really well done. It's a TV movie. Um, I don't know. I have a VHS of it that I got off eBay years ago when I had to do like a list of. Um, so is it, you're, like talking, a, you're talking the 1989 Final Days? Uh, was it? And it's got, it Lane, might have been, it's got Lane Smith as Richard Nixon? Yeah, Lane Smith. Yeah, Lane Smith. Um, as Richard Nixon, and um, and it's fantastic. It's actually really. It's nothing like all the presidents met. Obviously, it's not. It's set in the Nixon White House. Um, but um, it, it makes it would make an interesting. I've never like watched the two the two movies together, but I I I, I probably should because I think it would make an interesting. I've, I've never read the books, um, but I think it would make the an bo- interesting. The book. I, the book I've read. The book I've read, and and um. You know, if, funnily enough, you know, it's just sort of nursing presidents with me, and it's like this book is well, at least the print copy that I've got is you know three hundred and sixty odd pages, and uh-huh. and the really I want to say it's and I and I haven't got it marked out, and I will for future podcasts, but it's about one hundred and eighty two, like one hundred and eighty odd pages in, is where the movie stops. Like if you're reading this, like the, the is essentially like yeah. the 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 trigger point for everything that we've seen in the movie is literally in that in 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 that first chunk, and so even even in the and and the the flare of the the original address and and that particular date going up on the screen obviously is a purely you know screenwriting choice, but it's like it's so funny mm-hmm. that like to crack this script that's where it is. So if you if you if you are interested, the book goes much further in and off. Excuse me. Obviously, the final days goes even further. It is like literally in, sure. in the thick of it. So yeah, and there's a there's a stack of other great Watergate books that uh, that we'll be referencing as part of the show because there's just so, you know, if if you if if you want to really dive down some rabbit holes, you just need to uh, right now in 2019 because so many of them there's there's a, a stack of praise that is associated. Just type in Watergate into Amazon.com or something like that and get the books are just they're coming out of your ears. There's some really great ones, but I'm going to check that out. Final days, 89 telly movie. Yeah, if you can't if you can't find it, let me know. I have a VHS of it. Uh, like I Amazing. said, I got off eBay. I don't know if it. I, I I mean, this was years ago, so it's entirely possible that it came out on DVD later, or you know, perhaps perhaps it appeared on some great gray market sites or something or streaming. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, but uh, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a very good film. Um, and 
Yeah, and 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 you know, I mean, Nixon movies also, you know, Secret Honor and and um, you know all these other ones, Frost Nixon. It is fascinating how you know Nixon is. I think after Abraham Lincoln, our most you know cinematic president, uh, because he's such a great villain. And don't forget, obviously Nixon, the uh, the Oliver Stone yeah. Nixon, which is which is a great movie, a great movie, and it was a movie that, for some weird reason, in Australia, when they brought out that wonderful, you know, double box set of Oliver Stone stuff pre Alexander, it was not in there. Yeah. Like it was in the one in the states, and you had to go and find it. But it was absolutely incredible. And then there's also, I wanted to ask you if you saw this. There is actually the movie Mark Felt. The Man Who Brought Down the White House, starring Liam Neeson. Whenever the FBI hears a piece of gossip or information such as, I saw so-and-so out with another woman, not his wife, we're supposed to write everything down in memos. All your secrets are safe with us. How long have you been in the FBI? 30 years. That's a lot of information. I give you the guardian of the American dream. Mark Phelps. Fidelity, integrity, bravery. Ladies and gentlemen, the G-Man's G-Man. What is it? You better get down here. Five men were caught early this morning in the Washington headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. Here's what we know. The men who broke into the Watergate are not the end of this thing, but the beginning. No more interviews with White House people without permission. What? We put the investigation to bed in two days. The director of the FBI ordered the FBI to stop its own investigation. The nation tonight is in the midst of what may be the most critical constitutional crisis in its history. The White House has no authority over the FBI. We can at all. All this truth must be terrified of you. No one can stop the driving force of an FBI investigation. Not even the FBI. What you're doing will bring down the whole house of cards. Washington Post. This comes from classified FBI files. The White House has it, and now you have it. FBI agents have established Watergate incident as political sabotage. There's a spy in the FBI. The White House is gonna sanitize the entire town. How high? How high does this go? What about the president? Is the president lying? They're all lying. There's a nickname for you at the paper. Deep Throat. And Mark Felt, for people that don't apparently know right off the bat, is the man who later became known, after his, after his death, became known as deep throat because he was an associate director of the FBI. And funnily enough, Mark felt, if you look at Mark felt, um, and, and you look at his face, you will immediately see that his resemblance to Hal Holbrook is just completely undeniable because there are a bunch of actors and I'm sure we'll get yeah. to some point of research, but, uh, Woodward was very, um, as, as a sort of, producerial voice um, uh, in, in the crafting of this movie um, was very intent on having Hal Holbrook play Deep Throat. So I was wondering, just in the interest of other movie recommendations, if you saw the Liam Neeson as Mark Felt movie. I did not. I have a DVD of it here. I, I got a screener <laughs> of it that I, that I never watched. I heard it was terrible. So, I do want to watch it. 
because I'm a bit of a Liam Neeson completist and I feel bad <laughs> that I haven't watched that one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I heard it was, I heard it was terrible. I, I mean, yeah, no, that's the thing. I remember when they, you know, when he, when Mark felt finally emerged, I was like, holy shit, he actually does look like Hal Holbrook. <laughs> and I'm shocked that they did that. Like, you know, Woodward was otherwise so careful about hiding his identity that yes. you would have thought he would have cast like, I don't know, you know, you know, some, like uh, Alan Arkin or yeah, something. Yeah, get Alan Arkin. Get someone who doesn't look like But it's like funny that even in the movie Magic, it's like, no, we want Hal Holbrook because he's a great actor. It's like, yeah, they, they, they told that, well, they must have believed that for, you know, for 30 years until Mark Felt came out. So, yeah, it's just it, It's of, so funny. I, mean, it, I, I would love to hear those conversations of like, God, Woodward really has a hard on for Hal Holbrook, oh, you know? Like, <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. It's so good. It's so good. Well, I think that's it. I think that for our very first minute, I think uh, the precision and the power and the of the American political machine and the definitive and undeniable fact-based uh, emphasis of those strikes coming down and again, learning new wrinkles into the one of my dear friends, Bill Gabiri, that he's also a Liam Neeson completist amongst everything else. Thank you so much for being a part of yet another one of my crazy endeavors. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back. Yeah, you'll be back. We'll, we'll get you into that <laughs> underground garage with Mark Felt. And <laughs> just finally, you know the latest results of the Gallup poll? Half the country never heard of Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You know, you guys yeah. are probably pretty tired, right? You should be. You know, you've been listening to minute podcasts on One Heat Minute Productions, like One Heat Minute, Last 12 Minutes, The Mohicans, and Crim Advice. Well, you know, go home, get a nice hot bath, rest up 15 minutes, and get your asses <laughs> back in gear. Because over here at One Heat Minute Productions, we're under a lot of pressure, you know. And, you know, I put us there. So nothing's writing on this. Just, you know, the First Amendment right. of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and uh, and Bilger's got his feet up on the table and maybe the future of One Heat Minute Production podcasts. Not that any of that matters. Yeah. But if you guys fuck it up and don't listen, I'm going to get mad. Like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is a collaborative effort. I want to say a huge thank you to our narrator on this episode, Holly McBride, who read the opening blur from the Simon and Schuster edition of All the President's Men. Huge thank you to Bill Gabiri, our first guest, our leadoff man. Uh, you can find him at Bill Gabiri on Twitter and be led off to all his amazing work around the interwebs, whether that's at Vulture or any number of other sites that he uh, uh, spruiks his wares. Thank you so much to Bilga. Thank you guys so much for supporting One Heat Minute Productions in any way, just with your ears subscribing, listening to One Heat Minute, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, or most recently, Increment Vice with Travis Woods. Um, we are very, very grateful for your support and your ears. And if you do want to continue to support us, uh, please, um, if you can, if you've got a few bucks, you can throw that in on our Patreon. Um, there will be a couple of a, a little bonus editions on there if you want to jump on that. That link is on oneheatminute.com. If you want to visit Increment Vice, that's at incrementvice.com. And if you want to follow everything along this podcast, it's at ATPM Pod on Twitter. You can follow all updates. Yes, if you're already following One Hit Minute Productions, Increment Vice is every Friday. And now, all the President's Minutes will be catching you up every Sunday and Wednesday. If you have any breaking news or leads we need to follow, 
mail at oneheatminute.com. Until then. God damn it, what is somebody going to go on the record in this story?